0: welcome to another episode of the future socks podcast my name is mike rankin i will be your host today joined by james fox as well by our guest from fangrass mr dan Zimborski. dan it is so good to talk to you really looking forward to this conversation this is such a unique season that we're about to take on hopefully (laughs) uh, and i couldn't think of anybody better to break it down for us than you dan so i appreciate your time and thanks for jumping out with us
1: how you guys doing today
0: well, we're healthy,
1: uh, we're alive, and that's a good thing during these trying times, Dan. Yeah, sometimes when you say unique for things, it's a compliment. This time, it's 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 not a compliment. This has been a very... I, 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 I mean, I wasn't alive for the Spanish flu, but this has been about just the oddest year in my life, personally. And I guess for a lot of people, it's just... The world is very, very strange right now.
0: And I guess, let me start there with you, Dan, because obviously you're covering... Major League Baseball, and, you know, you dive deep in analytics for fan graphs. How has COVID-19 affected your work covering the sport?
1: Well, I mean, the first obvious thing is that there's been no baseball, uh, at least of the Major League variety. Uh, we have talked a lot more about Korea and Japan. Of course, Japan just started a couple of weeks ago, uh, and Korea has been going for a few months now. Uh, but we, we haven't really had a season without Major League Baseball at this point in the year. Uh, there have been, of course, baseball strikes, uh, the late season and uh, starting in 1995 and they came back from the strike. Uh, and, you know, there was even, you know, a world war, a couple world wars that didn't stop baseball. But this this pandemic has stopped baseball. So there's really not a lot going on. So you kind of run out of things to talk to. You're not really sure of the proper tone. Uh, it's it's weird to uh, to have to, you know, you, you don't know how to. Do things tonally which you don't normally know how to do because it's, it's weird to say hey this guy's gonna have a great season and when you know people are you know getting sick and dying and and stuff so it's 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 been a challenge to cover especially for someone who isn't quite as sensitive as i, as I should be at times uh, also i mean there's no baseball travel we didn't go to spring training uh i don't intend to go to any games uh because of the limited spots for uh, credentialed writers i don't want to you know take a spot away from a beat writer uh, but this will be like the first time I haven't gone to a game since I was like four. So it's it's kind of odd in that way, too.
0: Yeah, and I, I believe a lot of people can relate to that, Dan, and especially in this industry, obviously, when you think about it, that's why you, one of the reasons why you're rooting for baseball to come back is is for, you know, people like you in the, in the media trying to cover this sport, you know, without that outlet. You know, we've already seen it, uh, the impact that it has financially. But you mentioned that this is, I think, July 4th. I saw something on Twitter. Uh, the first time in baseball's history, aside from 1981, the, a team like the White Sox hasn't played on July 4th during a baseball season. So it's, yeah, very unique in a negative type of way. And that kind of leads me to an- another question for you here is based on the conversations, the negotiations leading all the way up to what we now know as spring training 2.0, obviously the financials kind of took the headway, which is disappointing, but How would you describe your perception of following this in terms of the health and safety protocols? How do you feel internally about the process and how baseball will handle things? Because we're seeing players already testing positive uh, and they're big names. And then there are also some who are deciding to sit out for the year.
1: Uh, yeah. One of the things that struck me about this is that the players and the owners, they took so long to come to an agreement on the economic issues. And that's not saying that the economic issues in a sport that made nearly $11 billion last year aren't important, but they really should have been. I mean, the owners didn't submit their proposal to restart the season until the end of May. And that that's that's pretty crazy if you're planning on having a season. Uh, this as soon as the season was delayed, they should have been ironing out these issues. There shouldn't have been an issue where both sides thought a March agreement meant something completely different. Uh, it feels like they they just waited too long. And some of the health stuff has gotten short shrift. Uh, I mean, I think they, I think they have a good plan. if They execute it well, but you know, executing a plan like this requires, you know, a lot of work, a lot of infrastructure. And we saw that kind of fail over July 4th weekend. Uh when when, you know, teams had to delay training because the testers didn't show up and baseball's excuse was that, oh, it was July 4th and we couldn't have expected that to happen. But, you know, July 4th is the same date every year as last I checked. Uh, and it's one of those things like, oh, you, you didn't expect July 4th to be a thing. It's just a lot of disorganization. And I'm, I'm worried that they're going to take what could have been a good plan and kind of incompetent themselves out of a season somehow. Dan looking at looking at fan graphs,
2: you see the White Sox at an 18% uh playoff change, I believe. How does how does a 60-game schedule like this benefit them possibly?
1: Well, it's it's very good for the White Sox, and really for any like not to be insulting, but second-tier contender uh that, that could use some help. Because in a short season, the quality of a team matters less. And that's not to say the White Sox can't be a really solid team. Uh, It's just that there are teams that, you know, won 100 games last year. Four teams won 100 games last year. And uh, when you put them in a 60-game season, crazier things can happen. Uh, The Yankees' playoff probability and World Series odds, the Astros, the Dodgers, all their, you know, odds got worse coming into, you know, a 60-game season instead of 162 games. And that benefits those second- and third-tier contenders that, that could make the playoffs, but it's just easier to do that in 60 games than 162 games. Uh, I mean, I think I think the White Sox still aren't, you know, as good as the Twins or Indians, but it's a lot easier to outplay a team you're slightly worse than over sixty games, you know, over the the full, the full score of games. Uh, I know Zips has been uh, pretty optimistic about the White Sox in a sixty-game season. Uh, Zips has tended to be more optimistic about the White Sox uh, coming into this season than than Steamer is, uh, and since FanGraphs uses uh, uh, a combination of of zips in the steamer to project the standings. That's why you'll you tend to see zips uh giving uh the White Sox better probability. It was 36% last run I did at making the playoffs uh than the uh the ones you'll find on the website.
2: Yeah, so you know, question that similarly then your initial projections I think what when it came out that it was like a 60 game schedule and it was regionally based, you had the White Sox you know right around 500 at 31 and 29. Do you think seeing the actual schedule last night, does that change that much?
1: I think it'll, it could push a win or two the other way. Uh, I don't think, generally speaking, the difference between team quality is that much, that unless you have a huge move in games, that it will really make that much of a difference. I'll, of course, run the standings with the actual schedule, uh, but I don't expect it to change much for that reason. I think the larger change is going to be which players opt out, which players are are, are positive. Uh, and might you know miss a month or the whole season because the whole season's two months now. Any injury you know in a couple of weeks is is you know a half season injury. Uh, I I I think like you look at the Braves. I mean they've they've lost Freddie Freeman for an indeterminate period of time, and that's a big swing in in a team's quality to lose a player like that. Uh, the White Sox haven't lost anyone of that quality yet. Uh, but you know, there's we still have th- two weeks to go until the projected start of the season for a lot of bad things to happen. Hope, but hopefully not.
0: You, you mentioned the 60 game season and how <laughs> that that short amount of time anybody really can can jump out and have an exceptional type season, right? And it doesn't have to be the so called Mike Trouts of the ball club. And what's interesting too is I, I noticed that you mentioned Johan Moncada and Yasmani Grandal as the two top players in your Zips projections on the White Sox. What about those two players qualifies them under your projection as the best? And, and do you see any outliers among the White Sox that that could jump out and really project to be good?
1: Uh, well, I mean, the White Sox have a lot of upside. Uh, Moncada has long been a Zips favorite. Uh, it was a little down on him after 2018, but it hasn't taken much to convince Zips that he's back. Yeah, there'll be some batting average and balls in play regression, but I think he's a solid player and you know Grandal is a very well-rounded player. Uh he's really underrated defensively. Uh I mean, he's not prime Yadi Molina, but you know a few few catchers are and he's such a such a a complete offensive player especially for a catcher. Uh so I think those are the safest players, but you know they have a lot of guys with upside on the team. Uh I know I've stopped picking him in my yearly breakout pieces cuz I'm always wrong, but I still kind of think that there could be a good NoMar Mazara in there somewhere. Uh I we we haven't seen it yet, but I still think there's a chance.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about Nomar Mazara and what he can do. But I feel like I don't know how a 60 game season hurts or benefits him. I think he's like an, a, a perfect example of a player that you just don't know, right?
1: It, it it's funny though. And uh, on on Fangraphs, one of the things we've been doing is we've been live casting MLB The Show stream every Friday, and uh, one of the funny things is in the first uh. Mazara had an 1100 OPS after April uh, in, in our little MLB, the show sim that we're doing. And uh, we, were, we were casting, you know, June games last time we, we, we did a cast and Mazzara still had an OPS above 950. And we already have a longer season than it's actually going to happen. So any, anything, anything can happen in a short season. I mean, Zips even gave the Orioles a one-point-something percent chance of winning the playoffs. And I can't think of a scenario in a 162-game season uh, in which that could happen.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. And I think that's something we're all keeping an eye on. Are these teams, who's good, who's bad? And does it matter, right? I guess we'll, we'll find out, hopefully. And you mentioned two uh, breakout candidates. and In your most recent article that you put together, Dan, you said Eloy Jimenez as one of them, one of
1: several across the league.
0: What makes him so enticing as a breakout guy?
1: Well, he took a little while to get going last year. I think he's he was a more complete hitter in the minors than he showed in the majors. Uh, I, I, I think he just has serious power potential, and I think I use Jordan Alvarez as, a, as an example of like the type of season he could have, and it wouldn't shock me if he did have that kind of season. Uh, it, it, it's risky. I know uh, the White Sox have other prospects, but almost it almost feels like people are sleeping on Jimenez a little bit. Dan, you also wrote recently, I guess, just about some of the records
2: and, you know, how baseball traditionalists like hang on to, you know, some of those records. And it's a sixty-game season, and you mentioned ERA specifically and Jack Flaherty. What are some records you think that could potentially be broken in a season like this over sixty games?
1: I, I think a lot of rate uh, statistics are, are are at risk, especially you know strikeouts per nine innings, uh, ERA, as I talked about. I, I don't think that the batting average record is at risk simply because the game's too different that even with the benefit of a short season, it's, it's really, really hard, uh, to, to hit, you know, what you need to do, because I do think that there's a chance that we will have a 400 hitter though. Uh, I haven't run exactly those odds yet. I'll, I'll do that next week at some point. Uh, but, uh, I, I I think there is a chance because we have had hitters hit 400 over Two months of the season and that's all they had to do this time i mean no one's gonna you know hit 440 like hugh duffy did uh but i it would be fun to have a 400 hitter but it would come with a giant asterisk uh one of the prevailing myths in baseball history is that there was ever an asterisk by roger Maris, uh when in fact ford frick was just asked you know off the record how he felt about it, he didn't like it, and that kind of became a big asterisk in the public eye. But there never was an asterisk. But someone who hits 400 or has an ERA under one this year, they're going to have an asterisk, whether official or not. It's just 60 games is just so different from 162.
2: So there's been a lot of talk about home and road, too, and how much that matters without fans in the stands. And obviously, you know, I think you'd rather have – Lasted bats than not but how much do you think the extra inning rules benefit the home team
1: in this scenario that still remains to be seen i'm curious how teams actually play it out uh I, I i think a few teams have kind of lucked into a pretty good scenario like uh the Giants signing billy hamilton i mean i'd love to start 10th innings with billy hamilton on second base uh i'm just hoping that this that this rule does not persist past this season uh, I never want to see this rule in a, in a normal year.
2: Yeah, we think, I mean, watching a lot of White Sox baseball like we do, it was kind of funny hearing Ricky Renteria, you know, to kind of talk about how he doesn't like it, which is surprising to me because Rick Renteria loves giving away outs and bunting. So <laughs> that's that's actually the one time where they could bunt a guy over and I wouldn't like throw my
1: remote across the room, I feel like. It's, it's, I mean, baseball. One of the things about baseball is that the rules have generally been pretty stable. Uh, when baseball changes rules, uh, it, they've, they've, they've done nothing like a three, like, you know, the, like the three point shot uh, in terms of rule changes. Uh, baseball kind of, you know, messes with like equipment, maybe changes the strike zone a little bit or the pitchers mound. But one of the basic things in baseball, even, you know, in the early days of baseball, when you could specify whether you wanted a high pitch or a low pitch, is that you kind of had to earn your way onto a base. And to have just a runner just magically appear on second because it's an extra inning game, it just feels like against like the core concept of baseball. Uh, I'm not surprised that Rob Manfred thought of it.
0: <laughs> uh, so I want to go back to what we were talking about a little bit ago related to ERA. And- You know, I pulled up that article that you were talking about that you put together related to just taking chunks of a pitcher's season and, and seeing, you know, that they could put a sub one ERA together, which is really fascinating, in my opinion, when you take it into this context of a 60 game season, that that could be their final ERA over across, you know, what is considered technically a full year. However, how does this relate to the White Sox in terms of the way that they should approach their starting pitching staff? I can assume it's not going to be typical or whether it's going to be every five days, but
1: what do you think is the, is the best way to go about implementing their, their pitching staff? I think generally speaking, I would not push starting pictures too far this year. You have a deeper roster to draw from, uh, and you have essentially two off seasons that they're recovering from the, the first off season, then a spring training, and then kind of a second off season, uh, the second spring training, uh, it's pictures we still haven't really figured out how to keep pictures healthy and to have something like this in the works that we don't really know the effects i I think that it's it's not a year that you want to say hey uh let let Keiko throw seven innings constantly even if he's doing well. I think that this is a year you want a lot of you know five innings six inning specials, even from your top starters uh I'd like to see teams have more tandem games bring back long relief as like a real role rather than just an occasional mop up afterthought. I I, I think that teams should play conservatively with their pitching staffs given just the contours of this year.
0: And I guess that leads me to my next question as well. And we're keeping an eye on Michael Kopech. Of course, he hasn't reported yet and hopefully all is well uh, in his situation. Uh, but we're also monitoring Carlos Rodon, who's back on the mound throwing live, which is a good sign. And just those two in particular, I feel like fit in well with what the White Sox could potentially do in in terms of maintaining the quality
1: of their arms. Yeah, and if and the White Sox are a team, they're chasing upside to to be a contender in 2020, and you don't get better upside than Michael Kopech. Uh, you don't get better upside than possibly having Carlos Rodon back in the game. Those are the those are like kind of those those unknown factors that could push them to the level of the Indians and Twins, or even beyond them uh kopek has always been a player who zips has found very interesting because where most players when you look at their outcomes there's like some kind of weirdly shaped curve kopek has has like a two humped curve uh apparently zips thinks he'll either be amazing or terrible but a lot fewer results in between than most pictures do uh so i mean he's he's a gamble but he's one of the most fascinating gambles around uh hopefully he's okay. There's, there's some unknowns there.
2: Yeah. So like Mike said, we're obviously hoping for, you know, Michael Kopech to get back and, you know, be ready to go at some point, but Carlos Rodon is there. They have some young pitchers too, like Dane Dunning and Jimmy Lambert who look may not have been considered for big league innings this year, but you know, without a minor league season, they might be, for a team like the White Sox that has a lot of young pitching like this, what do you think is the best way to utilize it like throughout a 60-game season? Do tandem starts
1: uh, make any sense for you with some of the starters if you have an excess of starters? Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of the tandem start in a, in, a, in a season like this where you have deep, deep rosters. Uh, Dane Dunning has long been a favorite of Zips. Uh, I, I, I think that how they use them as the season goes on depends on just where they are in the standings because if the White Sox fall out of it quickly, In a season like this, you fall out early, you've fallen out pretty much for good. And at that point, I think they have to start considering getting as much playing time for for some of these guys as they can, simply because there's no minor league season. I mean, that was officially announced last week, but everybody knew this back in April that there there wasn't likely going to be a, a minor league season. And you hate to see guys, you know, go a whole year again without facing real live talent. And I think that if the White Sox do fall out of the race, then there is the opportunity to 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 see some more of these guys and let them throw more innings, let them get more at bats. Uh, even if it you know results in fewer playing time from, you know, the veterans, less playing time.
2: Yeah, so another guy I wanted to ask you about is Luis Robert. Obviously, you know, the whole world kind of shut down here and spring training ended when it did, but you're, you know, the initial zips projections I feel like that came out for Luis Robert for his projecting his first season were very favorable. Even, you know, his like median level outcomes were, you know, I think I I was pretty happy about them. So I guess, why do you think um, he, he was such a favorite
1: for, for zips, like over, you know, his first season, I guess. Well, the upside of course is tremendous. Uh, Zips gave him a a 20% chance at a four war season, which is, you know, that's bananas. That's, that's a great projection. I mean, he's a very well-rounded player. Uh, maybe the plate discipline isn't, you know, Kevin Euclid's level or anything, but uh, he, he's got, you know, most of the tools you want. Uh, I wrote a piece on him uh, back in March, I guess. That feels almost like a year ago at this point. Uh, the White Sox playoff road is parallel to the Luis Robert Expressway. Uh, I, I, I think he's one of the guys who you have that, he has that upside that he could be a star. And he will fill in at a position where let's just say the White Sox had very little star talent in two thousand nineteen.
0: And how about it? Now they're they're starting to fill out that outfield a little bit with Aloy in left and, and Robert in center and, and Omar Mazzara. That's not a bad, you know, three man outfield. Defensively, you know, we could talk about that. Let's actually talk about that. How do you how do you project them defensively, that those three uh, in the outfield
1: there? Well, I well, Jimenez is, is obviously the, the player players had the the most struggles out there defensively. Uh, I I I still am not convinced he can be a major league outfielder, but you know it's worth it to try because if you if you just you know pigeonhole him in another position right now, uh, obviously there's the DH isn't even open with Edwin Encarnacion on the team. I think if you pigeonhole him too quickly, you never really will know what he's capable of. Uh, Mazar, I mean, he's he's fine. Right fielders as a group aren't that amazing defensive players. Now, Robert has huge upside. Uh, one thing I use is uh, Zips has uh, trajectory data for every ball hit in the minor leagues. And using that rough system, Zips had uh, uh, Robert as the second most valuable defensive player in the minors last year. Now, of course, these are very rudimentary uh, defensive measures, uh, even with, you know, having every ball, every trajectory. Uh, but that's that's promising and interesting, which means he could have you know Gold Glove upside. Uh, Zips is projecting him to be a really good defensive center fielder, but it's not convinced yet. Doesn't see enough data to you know conclusively say, hey, he's he's Kevin Kiermeier out there. But if he is Kevin Kiermeier out there, that his upside is just insane. That's incredibly
0: encouraging,
1: and among the young
0: players too. I'm thinking about Nick Madrigal defensively because we talk about the you know, the limitations in his game related, uh, you know, to his power at the plate, but there are so much other parts of his build that can translate to be a quality major league player. And defense has largely been considered uh, a major factor in whether or not, you know, he could be a plus player in the big leagues. How would you evaluate his defense at this point?
1: I, I think it's solid and very promising. Uh, and, and it has to be because, Essentially, uh, if, if he's not a second baseman or, you know, if he's not a middle infielder, then he becomes, you know, Juan Pierre, which is OK, but it's not super exciting. Uh, I I don't think he's ever really going to develop power and I don't think anybody expects him to develop power, but that's OK when you're a middle infielder. If you get on base, you have a good batting average to get all those numbers up. You play good defense. You can still be a a, a pretty good contributor. Uh it might you know keep him from being you know a superstar, Uh, but at second base, it's it's not crippling. If it turns out he can't play second base, then I think that the excitement level around him would drop quickly. but I, I'm not worried about that at this point,
0: yeah, I think that's fair, And I think that's where a lot of us are on board too, uh, with that way of thinking. Another one that I wanted to run by you, uh, and this is related to a couple more young players in the system, one freshly signed in Garrett Crochet, their first round pick. Uh, and Andrew Vaughn, a guy who got his first taste of professional ball last year. How do you believe that they fit into this equation and whether or not, you know, crochet may not get into games, but working out with, you know, big league talent, I'm sure is, is beneficial, but
1: where is Andrew Vaughn uh, as well? Uh, well, crochet, he looks like a picture. I mean, he, I mean, he's a big dude. I think he's still going to fill out more. Uh, I, I, I like you know, he had a big uptick in velocity. Uh, I, I like the pick, and the White Sox are at the, are at the uh, point in their development where they can start looking towards, towards team needs rather than taking the best available at every position. Uh, so I, 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 I am very interested in crochet. Uh Andrew Vaughn, I mean, you still need to see him uh, in, in the upper minors. And the, the basic truth is he is, you know, a first-base prospect. Uh, which means he, he is going to have to, you know, develop power in the minors. He will need to develop power fairly quickly. Uh, but there's, there's not a lot of, you know, you know, first base prospects in the majors this year. He's already, you know, probably the top three.
2: Dan so you know it's going to pain me to say this cuz I always joke that the Cleveland Indians destroyed my childhood as a young White Sox fan <laughs> but you know I I kind of looked at this full season as the year where the Indians might struggle sell off some pieces like a Mike Clevenger or a Frankie Lindor but in a year like this man they look like one of the favorites to me with some of with the the amount of pitching they have and their bullpen and Tito Francona do you think how much truth do you think there is in that where this is the type of team in a 60 game season where you know their pitching
1: could just like lead them on a run, yeah. I I I think they are a strong team, and people are probably writing them off too quickly. Obviously, uh, it, since you you don't like the Indians, it's it's it should be a relief to note. I mean that that Lindor is a free agent after next season, uh. So the reckoning is coming for the Indians. I just I'm just not positive that it's that it's in 2020. Uh, even with even with a full season, uh, I mean it despite, you know, struggling for two months, they still won ninety three games last year. It's 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 not a bad team. But their day will come and the White Sox I think will pass them in a in a year or two. You you know, you've all you joked about Baltimore earlier
2: and you haven't run, you know, the absolute latest projections. And we know, look, like this is going to be a lot like the playoffs, right? Where variance is going to be at a high, like in a 60 game season, you could have an average major league player go on a three week run and be awesome. And it'll look totally weird. And it'll be an outlier and nobody will know what's going on. And everybody seemingly has a chance. How many teams do you think there are that really don't even have a chance in a 60 game season? Is it just, is it just like Detroit Baltimore? Um, you know, maybe the Marlins
1: or are there maybe a couple more than that? I, I wouldn't even count out the Marlins. They they do have interesting young pitching on the team, and they could luck into a few good offensive months and, and make a run at a wild card. I don't actually think that that's crazy. I think the Orioles and Tigers, realistically, uh, even if they had like a slight chance of, you know, trying to push ahead and put the best roster on the field and and chase that you know one or two percent chance of making the playoffs i don't necessarily think that's they're in their best interest i think that the tigers want to look at all their young pitching that they have rather than try to put the best guys out there every game i think the orioles need to look at a lot of players rather than maximize what they get from trey mancini so i i think those teams are are probably out of it i think the mariners likely are too uh but Outside of that, I don't think that there's any team I would categor- categorically eliminate from the season at this point. Even some of the, you know, the basement teams, uh, like, like, like the Giants or probably the Rockies and uh, even the Pirates, I think all have a chance.
0: You mentioned some teams there, Dan, and, and one of them being the Pirates, of course. And I wanted to stick to the, to the central region uh, in this instance. Are there any teams particularly there that intrigue you uh, uh, more so than the rest, I guess.
1: The Reds intrigue me. I think that they get a very good boost from uh, from the DH rule now being a universal thing, probably forever at this point. Uh, they already have probably two outfielders that should be designated hitters, uh, in Jesse Winker and uh, Nicholas Castellanos, but now they could theoretically play both of them at the same time. I mean, I would hope they wouldn't have run a defensive outfielder with, a, you know, a defensive outfield with both of them, but now they actually can. And I think that 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 the team construction is good for that kind of thing. They can they can move Nick Senzel to second base or shortstop uh if if they want to take a chance. And that DH gives them more flexibility to 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 rotate in some of those outfielders that they have. So I think the Reds are interesting, especially because there's no great team in their division. The the Cubs had that potential, but they've kind of, you know, backed off, been much less ambitious. Telling us how you know they're completely out of money. I mean, you know, being the World Series winner in Chicago, there's not much money in that apparently. So in a in a in a division where there's no one that's all that great, it gives a it gives just you know an opening for a team like the Reds. And as I said, I'm not even counting out the Pirates because the division just isn't that great.
2: Yeah. So how about the the DH rule overall? Obviously. You know, it's not set in stone that it's going to be something in 2021. We hope that it is. You know, I'm, I've been an American League fan, and I just kind of, you know, don't think pitchers should be hitting anymore. Mostly, you know, they're bad at it, but they're also, like, not really asked to do it, and they shouldn't be. So I guess just looking at that, what is how much do you think National League teams are at a disadvantage I guess maybe this year, just because they didn't know it was coming and they didn't prepare for it? Or could you argue the other way that like any hitter they put in their lineup is better than
1: a pitcher, so they're not at a disadvantage? I think it puts them at a disadvantage simply because it's harder to to put together a roster at this point. But then again, you can say Yasiel Puig is a free agent, so until he's signed, you can't really complain about not having a DH option. Uh, If you're a contender and you don't have a DH and you're an NL team, you you don't get to whine about that until Puig is unavailable because he would be a terrific DH uh, for for a team, especially because he's you know he's going to be better than what most teams conjure are up for the spot. Uh, I I tend to think that it's never going away again, that this is a permanent change realistically, and baseball has been kind of slowly moving towards this for years. Uh, they've there, there's been a lot of buzz about talking about it coming and. Uh, I, I've always felt that as soon as there was daily interleague play, that it was inevitable that there was going to be the universal DH, because before there was a daily interleague game, uh, the interleague games were limited to kind of these two little blocks every season. And when an NL team knows that they're going to have you know, their DH block, they can plan their roster around that accordingly. Uh, they can have someone like William Mopena hanging around in A that you can call up to be a DH for a couple weeks, a couple times a year. But when it's a daily event, now you suddenly have to ha- occasionally come up with a DH, and you can't really have a dedicated DH, even in AAA. You can't just, you know, call up a guy and send him down for three games nonstop. Uh, I, I I think that now that interleague play is a thing every day, and that's not going away, I, I think this is kind of the final straw for uh for the, the for the for pitchers hitting, and it's so weird because if someone told you. Uh, last winter there's going to be a worldwide pandemic and as a result the national league will adopt a designated hitter
2: yeah How about what would you have memory? thought of that statement <laughs> well, i might at the time like you know because i kind of think like you i might have taken that deal honestly <laughs> no more pitcher. we all we need is a pandemic for no more pitchers hitting ever again but who in, expected but, that
1: yeah. to happen the series of events that happened is so weird sounding and it 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 doesn't sound weird anymore but back then it's like oh it's like that old you know the the internet's you sweet summer child meme that's that's so everybody in december because i mean that the last six months have been so long it feels like it's been years since the nationals won the world series i don't know how you guys feel but that's what it feels like to me yeah it feels so i'm a you know i'm a
2: teacher for my day job and i joke that you know it's like march 78th or something still right now it's not even you know it, go, doesn't e- it doesn't even feel like we have months anymore so
1: you're gonna go back to school and, and little billy's gonna have a beard
0: yeah well yeah and you can hopefully that beard is protected by a mask i, I guess <laughs> that's what's happening now these days and you know what too? just stay on that topic what a unique series of events that just continued to play out and not and not like a morbid, way obviously because we're we're obviously rooting for people to stay alive but when you look at it in a a, when you take a step back and you're a fan and you look at this process go out as it impacts you know the favorite sport in which you cover how it's like it's it's mind-blowing and something that we're looking forward to Dan as well is how these next two years play out because the 2021
1: CBA is looming so Oh, I don't want to. I'm trying not to think of the CBA uh, negotiation after the difficulty getting this season going. Uh, I don't think baseball has, you know, a strong enough place in you know, the public eye that that, that we could lose another season for something that that is avoidable because you can't avoid a pandemic. You can't avoid, you know, economic strife and people not getting along. I think that personally, I'd like them to just say, hey, why don't we just extend the current deal? By two years, report back, and, and we'll talk about it in 2023 when the world's normal. I don't think they will, but I think that there. I don't think that the, uh, the collective bargain agreement is so egregiously bad for any party that pushing it back two years would really be a hardship.
0: And you know what? I like that. I like that thinking because, in my opinion, real quick, it's just a matter of if they're able to get this deal done somehow before, you know, it's – absolute latest conclusion in which they can get this done, like get it done early, get it out of the way, avoid all of this. Right. Cause we saw what happened once everything's leaked to the media day by day, it's, it's a, it's a brutal struggle and they're getting terrible PR for it. So you know what, if they go that route, that's great, but get it done early. So we don't have to live through this again.
1: Yeah. Baseball tends to take the route for doing things the way I would do, you know, term papers in college. Sure. I'd be like, oh, I have two months to write this, so I only need to write 1.6% of the paper every day. And then we get to two weeks. Well, I still have two weeks to go. I only need to write, you know, about about 8% of it every day for the next week. And then I get to, like, two days before. Okay, I have to write half of it today, half of it tomorrow. Uh, and then, then you know, the final day, okay, okay, it's 1 p.m. I can't go to sleep until this is done. Uh, that's That's kind of how baseball is run and i don't think they should they should be run like i ran my life in college and really for my entire 42 plus years <laughs> uh because i've i've made lots of bad short-sighted decisions uh but i don't none of them have risked 11 billion dollars a year
0: geez you, you know you say that out loud and it's just mind-blowing <laughs> um but yeah that was the there was no sports.
1: that was yeah. it's just the spring i mean there was no sports on the tv what what happened this was a lot of fun dan really
0: appreciate you jumping on the show james you have anything else before we say goodbye
2: yeah maybe one last thing um dan as a as a math guy you know i cover the draft for future socks and one of the one of the questions is how they're going to figure out next year's draft order do you like do you even have like a suggestion or what you think makes sense like do you combine last year's record and this year's record i just don't think I don't think you can take a 60 game sample and give the worst team the first
1: pick. I want to go the whole wacky NHL lottery route with, with rounds and weighted balls. And, and, you know, you could have challenge rounds and physical challenges like on double dare. And the team that has the number one pick right now is
2: like one of eight different teams that we don't even know who it is. So am I dating myself too much with a
1: double dare reference? No, no, Nickelodeon.
2: We watch Double Dare. Okay, I'm you good. like Double Dare.
1: Okay, I, I, I love Double Dare. Yeah. Okay, I want to make sure because sometimes I think the saddest I ever was, and you know, a good podcast is I was with someone who I mean, he was in college, and I made a Simpsons reference, and it went completely over their head. Yeah. And they had to seen the Stonecutters episode, and my heart just dropped. I said, "This is the moment I've become old."
0: <laughs> well, Dan, we really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. Pleasure to talk to you, sir. Before we let you go, is there anything that you're working on that we could look forward to uh, over at Fangraphs or anything personally?
1: Well, I'm I I just posted my uh, breakouts and breakdown players uh, at Fangraphs. I'm I'm working cuz we are doing our positional uh rankings uh next starting next week. So I'm working on the second baseman and the starting pitchers who I've drawn in our in our, our our pool this year. And of course, we will have, you know, more projected standings as we get closer to the year. And we find out who plays and who doesn't and whether baseball's actually a thing. Uh, so we're all in this, you know, gallows humor experience together.
0: Yeah. Uh, if baseball is actually a thing, I think that's uh, a perfect
1: way yeah. of summing things up.
0: And it. it was
2: it was your first year not picking Nomar Mazara, I think, to break out. So hopefully that happens finally for our sake.
1: Yeah, I, I picked him like three or four years in a row. Yeah. It's sad. But- but well, he looks like a guy who should be hitting for power. So let's, let's, let's hope that I can be right. Like sort of.
0: Well, and Mazar has been in the league for how many years now, you know, he broke in when he was a 20 year old. He's got the profile. He's got the size. It's only a matter of time.
1: I, I hope. Well, I'll take that and, and I'll, I'll cross my fingers. You guys have a great one.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much, Dan. You can follow Dan Zimborski on Twitter at dZimborski. Check out his work on fan support fan graphs. If you're able One more time for Dan Samborski. We really appreciated having him on. We also appreciate you listening. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, and Anchor.fm for our full library. For James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. We will talk to you all next time.